Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for February 19th, 2017. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Ladane McLeese Pulaski, Executive Director of the Baptist Peace Fellowship and a member of Park Road. Her sermon today is entitled Community, Conflict, and Transformation. If you were here on Wednesday night, you heard me say that even if the sermon isn't rememberable, the music certainly has been. Terry and choir, thank you so much. And thanks to Alex and Dick for agreeing to help lead and worship. Have a good team. And if you're tempted to cheer like Amy at a PC game when Jackson completes his first college inning, that's cool with me. If you don't think that Jesus has a sense of humor, or at the very least a finely developed sense of irony, I ask you to reconsider the text from the Gospel. The disciples have just been through a week that began with triumphal entry and ended with bewilderment, betrayal, denial, and death. Their leader has been crucified, their movement defeated, their dreams crushed. Overwhelmed by the fear that what happened to Jesus will happen to them, some of them haunted by memories of their own desertion, all of them questioning what they did or did not do in those final days, and all of them wondering at these strange stories of an empty tomb. The disciples are locked away from the world. They have gathered with the few people who know where they have been, understand what they have lost, and share their despair and confusion over where they can go now that it is all over. Then Jesus comes suddenly and stands among them. And what does he say? Peace be with you. Not once, but twice. Peace be with you. That wasn't, I think, the peace that the disciples were seeking when they sought shelter behind the fastened door. This peace propelled the one who offers it into the world. It propelled him into the threat of a Jerusalem occupied by the world's great superpower, a regime bent on maintaining dominance at all costs. It propelled him into the desperation of Gethsemane, where he wept and prayed that this cup might even yet pass from him. This is a peace for which the cross and the crucifixion were not the end, but the fulfillment. And this peace, if they accept it, will send the disciples into the world, even as Jesus was sent into it. In the raw days of the summer of 2015, many of us here in Charlotte found ourselves aching from the recent Charleston massacre and uneasily anticipating the trial of a white CMPD officer charged with the shooting death of an unarmed black man. 
During that season of anger and anxiety, I attended a presentation by Tom Hanchett, staff historian at the Levine Museum of the New South. We later had Tom present that same presentation here at Park Road, so many of you have seen it. Tom presents his research about how the current segregation of Charlotte came to be, detailing a slow, steady, intentional process that first separated neighborhoods by color, and then, in the name of urban renewal, destroyed the thriving black neighborhoods that resulted. He also highlights the deliberate and denial, deliberate and violent denial and suppression of voting rights that made that process possible. In one horrifying slide, he displays a photo of a float in the civic parade, which depicted a man in blackface attempting to vote while a white man held a gun to his head. After the presentation, we were asked, our, asked to sort ourselves into small groups to discuss what we had just heard. My group of 10 was split evenly between white and black participants. One by one, the black members of the group shared stories of how the facts shared in the presentation had played out in their families and their lives. One young woman in her 20s told us that after her grandparents had lost their home and their business in the city's renewal process, her family had never recovered financially. She was struggling to find money to pay for college as a direct result of the city's past policies. And her story was typical. Every black member of the group had directly experienced the debilitating reality that Hanchett outlined. Yet each and every time one of them shared something that even remotely hinted at pain or displayed anger, one of the white members of the group spoke up immediately to dismiss, deny, or diminish the story. I would never act with that kind of prejudice. Isn't it good that it's not like that anymore? I'm not like that. None of my friends are like that. We did everything except hear them. I tried several times to speak up, but I couldn't get in a single word. I was impressed that the African-American members of the group kept trying, but deeply chagrined as it became obvious that nothing that they shared was going to be heard. I was angry, and I was confused. The white members of the group were clearly good-hearted folks, trying to do the right thing. They'd given up a beautiful summer evening and driven into an unfamiliar part of town to have a conversation about race. Clearly, they recognized a problem and they were trying to respond. Yet when the conversation they desired actually showed a sign of beginning, they shut it down immediately and seemingly without any awareness of having done so. I don't think I'd get an argument from anyone here that if that summer of 2015 was fraught with tension and anxiety, this winter of 2017 is worse. A few weeks ago, Amy shared in a sermon here, there is something toxic in the air these days. There is anxiety in our systems breeding more anxiety. So those of us gathered here today have made a conscious decision to press pause 
and gather in this place of sanctuary to take a deep breath, to be strengthened by a sense that we are not alone, to be reminded that God is with us and we have each other. And if we can't figure out how to do this, if you were here, you might remember the pain in her voice as she said this. And if we can't figure out how to do this, how to be this kind of community, then how in the world can we expect our city or our state or our country or our world to do it? Given the toxicity and the anxiety and the anger and the tension, walking into that challenge feels a lot like joining the disciples and unlocking that door and stepping out into the world. Peace be with us? Really? Can we? Can we have honest and possibly healing conversations across differences of race and class and political opinion? Can we speak our own truths with pain and anger and be heard? Can we listen to ills that we cannot cure and choose not to diminish or deny them, but simply to hold them? Can we sit in a pew with someone whose views and votes are unlike our own and be community together? This is pretty much my day job, so I feel like I speak with good authority here when I say, yes! Yes, 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 we can do this. It is not easy, and it is not fast, and it is not guaranteed, but it is possible. I know because I have seen it. Again and again and again, I have seen it. In the worst possible situations, I have seen it amongst people who have quite literally been killing each other. I have seen it. One of my favorite work mementos is a picture of a group of men armed with AK-47s holding a banner that reads, Thanks, Baptist Peace Fellowship. We were part of helping them to negotiate a ceasefire, one step on a long path towards stopping and healing a long civil war. And if it is possible for them, it is possible for us. But how? My personal response to my disheartening small group experience was to work with a black colleague to create a training that we call, Do Not Be Afraid, Changing the Narrative in the Midst of Racial Conflict. It is one of the places in which I have seen the hard work of transformation take place. Based on that experience and others through my 20-some years of work, I want to offer a few images of what makes it possible. The skills, the tools, the mindsets, the spiritual resources exist. So let me share a glimpse of them and offer the assurance that there is a great deal more wisdom where this comes from. And I don't mean me, but a tried and tested way of understanding and responding to conflict. For some time now, the Baptist Peace Fellowship, that's my day job, 
has been drawn to the concept of conflict transformation. Conflict transformation, or CT, as we call it in the office, is a set of beliefs and practices formed around the idea that conflict is a normal, natural, necessary part of human life that can be used to create positive change. Normal, natural, necessary. It is an understanding that conflict is an inherent part of human life that unlocks an immense amount of energy. And it's a way of responding to that conflict in ways that are constructive rather than destructive. The stance of conflict transformation focuses on transformation and not resolution. In his very helpful book, The Little Book of Conflict Transformation, John Paul Lederach, one of the founders of the field, writes, transformation envisions the presenting problem as an opportunity to engage a broader context, to explore and understand the system of relationships and patterns that gave birth to the crisis. It seeks to address both the immediate issues and the systems of relational patterns. Carolyn Schrock Shank, another CT practitioner, writes more simply, conflict is an opportunity to know. We don't have to come to an agreement in order to transform the things that come between us. In fact, the desire to resolve problems by coming to one shared understanding can be a problem. Lederach, reflecting on several decades of work addressing bitter and complicated conflicts, often armed, all throughout the globe, observes that it's possible to solve a problem without resolving a conflict. You can solve a surface issue without setting real change into motion, almost assuring that the conflict will come back. Or you can create justice and deepen relationships in ways that will make the renewal of conflict less likely in the future. Such change, he asserts, always begins with a handful of people, a handful of people willing to sow seeds of a new and positive way of being. Enduring change, he asserts, is seeded not by large numbers of like-minded people, but by a quality of relationship in which we seek to understand even those who do not understand us. And here I just want to give you a little taste of what I've learned about making this work. The original transcript was about 20 pages long. <laughs> I cut it considerably. But we can talk more if you're interested. Later. We have to give up the desire to fix things or fix people by forcing a shared agreement. When we're, resolved, when we're focused on resolving things, Hearing stories of permanent patterns of discrimination and their lasting effects, or hearing why somebody voted the way they did, does not feel like an opportunity to know. It feels like a threat. So we really have to learn how to hear and hold rather than hear and argue.
We have to go into difficult conversations knowing that we and those with whom we disagree will make mistakes in our language. Those mistakes will be both slips of the tongue in which we say things and they just come out wrong, and also times when what we say reveals real and unconfronted biases. If we want to be honest anyway, we have to find grace for them and for ourselves. We have to increase our ability to be uncomfortable. We often begin our trainings with exploration of a tool that asks participants to consider three concentric circles. The innermost circle represents that place of ease and complete comfort. The outermost circle represents the alarm zone. In both of those, very little learning and very little change takes place. The middle zone is where we aim, a level of discomfort in which great transformation is possible. Rather than seeking, situa rather than seeking situations that never alarm us, it's possible and preferable to learn how to exist in that hard area, exactly where discomfort begins to become alarm, and we can learn to push our personal boundaries further and further. And though none of the above is easy, there are tools, really specific tools that we can use that help. In our training, we use several different techniques for highly structured conversations that allow participants to go really deep in a short amount of time and allow them to share pain and anger and confusion without harming other people in the circle. I have watched these tools enable ordinary people to share their deepest and darkest agonies in ways that transform their hearers and even themselves. And we end our training day by exploring trauma awareness and resilience. We have become convinced that understanding how people and groups respond to trauma is essential to understanding where we find ourselves in our country right now. It's only in understanding the trauma that we have known individually and collectively, as well as the trauma that we have inflicted individually and collectively, that we can hope to move toward healing and resilience. Unaddressed trauma, whether in a group or in one person, creates a continual and predictable cycle of acting out as aggressors or acting in as victims. Only a process of acknowledgement makes possible actions for reconnection that can break that cycle. We end the day by naming specific actions that we can all take right now to start to break free from this cycle. We have for our training a vision. Hurt people hurt people but transformed people transform people. I want to circle back to the scripture and take up a part of the reading that I have not yet highlighted. I want to address five words that I hope made you cringe when Alex read them. The doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. At first, I thought of addressing those words as a necessary but irrelevant sidebar to the sermon. But then I realized that understanding those words and their consequences is actually at the heart of what I'm trying to say. 
In our work, we often use the image of conflict as a fire, holding within itself the twin possibilities of immense destruction and immense power. It can be light and energy and warmth that makes life possible, or it can lay waste to everything and everyone in sight. In the words of 1 Corinthians, fire tests and reveals. So what do we see brought to light in those five words? I'm grateful that my immediate family includes not one, but two PhD biblical scholars, Tom's twin brother Don and his wife Sandra. So I turned to them to help me to address these hard words. And most of what follows comes from my discussion with them. I married well in any number of ways. First, a little history. By the time the Gospel of John was written, the Jesus movement was already on its way to being a largely Gentile phenomenon. And the Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah are no longer as tolerant as they once were with sharing the synagogue with the Jesus movement folks. The community in which John's Gospel was written would have been a community of Jesus believers, some of whom had never been Jews, some of whom had converted to Judaism as followers of Jesus, and some of whom had been born Jewish, but were now being told that they no longer belonged. And it is to these wounded, angry, anxious people, wondering about their place in the world, that the gospel writer addresses these words. Often wrapping up complex ideas in a single word, flesh, darkness, light. When the gospel writer refers to the Jews, it really means something more like the mostly non-Galilean, mostly leadership group that opposed the take on Judaism that Jesus and his followers are being seen to practice. But this gospel isn't big on nuance. And so we get the Jews. Even though every single person in the story, Jesus, his followers, his opponents, the crowds who observed them, is Jewish. The writer uses a slur against his own people, reflecting a deep congregational wound that has not yet begun to heal. And this is painful and problematic enough on its own. But these words and others like them scattered throughout the Christian scriptures have given rise to a grievous history of Christian anti-Semitism that has included forced expulsions and violent pogroms and the horrors of the Holocaust and the traumas of hate crimes that continue and have spiked in our day. And here my brother-in-law's words are so helpful that I'm going to quote them verbatim. John's community has come out of a situation of disputation and anger, and we can imagine all sorts of wounds to the various sides. It was painful and messy, and those involved failed to redeem the pain. So we have this token of anger, a stone waiting to be hurled, left in the middle of this text. We should recognize it for what it is. Let it serve as a reminder of what paths not to take and steadfastly refuse to pick it up. There are so many stones waiting to be hurled these days so many stones being hurled these days. 
How do we become those who steadfastly refuse to pick them up? And here I really want to focus on us. Park Road Baptist Church. One group of people caught up in a much larger cycle of conflict. We can begin by holding to the truth that these current conflicts in and of themselves are not sin. Conflicts simply happen when people live in relationship. Relationships without conflicts are simply acquaintanceships. And we as Christians are not called to be acquaintances, but sisters and brothers. We can know that we have access to power that can reshape us as individuals, as a church, and as the church in ways that are absolutely necessary for our continued relevance and survival. We can be certain that we have the chance not simply to make sticky questions go away, but to use the discussion of those questions to build stronger, more nurturing, more mature communities. And we can remember that these conversations do not take place in a vacuum. As a church, we have a rich variety of resources. We can dialogue not only through talk, but also through music and rituals and shared work. It is a resource that we should not take lightly, that we might disagree over Wednesday night dinner and then host Family Promise as a team together on Saturday worship together on Sunday, and send a group of representatives off to Cuba on Monday. We have everything it takes to do this. Paul, writing to a congregation as divided and contentious as any, reminded them of their shared foundation. For all things are yours, the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. And there's this. After Jesus had greeted his disciples with that disconcerting word of peace, after he had shown them his wounded hands inside, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Leaving our locked silos where everyone looks like us or thinks like us, to enter into honest encounters in which we'll be contradicted and challenged and changed, may feel like walking into death. But we do not go through that door alone. God's Spirit is with us now and always. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams.
Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.